Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 64, Sean Dombrowski of Edible Acres. Sean is a gardener, nurseryman, and YouTuber from the Finger Lakes area of New York. In this episode, we speak with Sean about how he got into gardening, about his gardening philosophy, and we talk about ponds, about hand-digging ponds and using machines for ponds, and we have a lot of fun geeking out about some of our favorite plants like schizandra and persimmon. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash plantcunning, and shout out to all of our patrons. You are really helping us do this, and as usual... Enjoy the episode. Okay, so today on the Plant Cunning Podcast, we have Sean Dombrowski of Edible Acres. And Sean is a permaculturist, nurseryman, YouTuber, and permaculture consultant. Um, So Sean, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you two doing? Grand. Wonderful. It's like really winter now. Yeah. 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 Single digits coming up in the next few nights. That'll be fun. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. I think you know, next week or so. Oh, gulp. <laughs> cool. Well, I guess that's New York, right? We've been kind of expecting it. It's a little overdue. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I guess you're right. Well, we we do have a traditional first question on our podcast, and it's how did you come to the plant path? Yeah, boy. Um, I would say I've been on it, I think in some ways, since I was a little kid, I, without going into too long with the story, I grew up in suburban Northern New Jersey. And um, my mom, it was a small lot that we lived on, but my mom basically gardened in a funky way, most everywhere that was there, which was not a very common thing for that neighborhood. Um, So I think I just grew up with the idea that, you know, sunflowers might be popping in between the the sidewalk and the the driveway and that there might be raspberry patches all throughout the backyard and mints growing underneath them. And she was a pretty loose and wild gardener. And um, I grew up with that feeling in my life. So I went to school for fine art. I thought that was the path I was going to take, but I was gardening all the while. And then around 2005 made the decision to make it definitely the full-time focus in my life. Hmm. Cool. Very cool. Was was your mom growing food as well as flowers and herbs? Yeah. Yeah. It was a home garden for, you know, just fresh. It wasn't, you know, self-sufficiency. It was more like, you know, lots of fresh greens and veggies in the summer and some stuff to freeze and have in the winter, lots of flowers. And more than anything, it just felt like um, the, an acknowledgement or leaning into kind of the wildness of just plants shooting out of every nook and cranny. It's a, it's a distant memory now as a bunch of years ago, but, but I just, I remember growing up with her talking to plants and just walking around the yard and generally having it feel really crowded with snacks, which felt like a nice way to grow up. That is really nice. And it must've been such a stark contrast from like other New Jersey gardens. Like you're saying, it's not common. Yeah. Feral garden vibe yeah but it was common enough in our own landscape that it felt it almost felt like it was unusual to see really tightly mowed lawns and 
more like the normal thing was to have an interesting garden was what it felt like. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so you studied art. Has that influenced the way that you garden? Because I, I see permaculture kind of as that nice in between, well, between uh, science and an art, you know, oh, and yeah. I think, that, well, yeah. How has that influenced you? I think so. I think if I, yeah, I, um, <clears throat> I don't, I don't really sit down and, I mean, it's not like I was drawing and painting. It was more computer graphics and, and experimental video work and 3D experimental work that I was doing. But um, I, I don't do much, if, that, if at all, any of that at this point. But it does feel like um, working with really complex perennial landscapes and sculpting soil, like doing a lot of... Um, raised beds and then also waterways and I do a, a, a lot of hand dug ponds and silt traps and you know rice paddies and like textured landscapes so it does feel like life is pretty filled with a sculptural element for sure hmm. yeah I can see that for sure and you know growing gardens is just so aesthetically pleasing and your gardens are beautiful from what we've seen online so oh thank you Absolutely. Yeah, we enjoy it's it's Sasha and I. I need to make sure that that's very very clear. We both work on our home gardens extensively, and um, it's a nice intersection of medicinal herbs and flowers and food, and then also key um, mother plants for our nursery. So it's like the same space might might be trying to accommodate a number of different goals at the same time. I also want to note that our dear friend Juan has been a really important part of the work that we've been doing over the last few years. We work together a few days a week and together we've been doing some really wonderful gardening and expanding of the nursery. It's been really exciting to have him knit into our world. So shout out to Juan for sure. So um, a lot, you're, you're part of the permaculture scene in general. Is that how you got into gardening again in, you know, after college? Or when did you get into permaculture as as a thing? I don't think uh, I yeah I wouldn't describe things as you know that I learned about permaculture and that drew me into the idea of gardening. I think it was more about uh, getting into growing plants, getting into having more relationship with nature, trying to understand systems, and having more and more affinity for tree crops and nature mimicry like looking at hedgerows as being these incredibly productive areas and trying to maybe not decode but just trying to understand a little bit what the patterns are and, and how to how to match those or play with those ideas and I think over time kind of led to the idea of like oh that overlaps with this practice called permaculture um, but it, that that can feel a little fraught or complex because I think within that world the term permaculture and the way it's used can sometimes be, I don't want to say it's abused, but it can be used in a way where um, it, it, it takes away from what I think some of the really compelling principles and ethics of permaculture and it makes it more into like a, a certain look and feel for a garden. You know, like there's, um, yeah, it can, be, it can be a little challenging to use the term permaculture just because of how it's, uh, used in other ways, if that makes any sense. Well, there's like the whole, uh, you know, the permaculture TM thing, you know, 
Yeah, I guess that, yeah, I guess that's what I'm alluding to or, or trying to like nudge my way towards is just being careful that I, I like, I feel like when I think about permaculture through the lens of principles that were articulated by folks that described the, the, the farming system and the, the overall structure back in the day, it's super compelling to me. And then also at the same time, it is a way of describing what are, for the most part, actually like traditional systems of farming that were done for thousands of years by lots of different folks of lots of different backgrounds and predominantly women in cultures across the globe. And so there's, there's a complexity to all of it that um, is, it's a little tricky to try to navigate sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, but are you trained as a permaculturist? I mean, did you take a, a PDC and? Uh... No, no. Um, I went to, I went to a course back in 2007 with Dave Jackie, who's a pretty neat thinker around uh, edible forest gardens. Um, he gets deep into the science of polycultures and guilds and, and the complexities of plant interrelationships. And I went to a workshop, uh, it was a three-day workshop. I didn't know what it was going to be about. Actually, some friends just said, oh, I think you might enjoy this. And um, that that was very informative. And then, you know, got a couple books on the ideas around permaculture and then from there just kind of poked around but for the most part i think the systems that we develop and work with um aren't necessarily from like explicit patterns or you know educational structure from elsewhere it's just from the principle of observe and interact like experimenting and exploring and getting that feedback from the systems and evolving through that through that dialogue with the systems that we're engaged in. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, there's also, to me, it seems like you have a very playful attitude towards gardening. It's like you're, you know, you're interacting with the land and the plants, but you're you're having fun and experimenting with it. Yeah, I'd like to think that that's true. I think there are times, certainly, where things feel pretty compressed and stressful. Yeah, yeah. Since, <laughs> you know, we have uh, our our livelihood is tied directly to the landscapes that we work with you know we since we are a nursery like that's how we make our living so there are you know stressors that come here and there but I think in general whenever there's an opportunity to be a little bit more loose and playful for sure and and experimental and intuitive in moving things forward that that tends to be what influences what happens more often than not so yeah I'm glad that that I'm glad that that's what comes forward in what you see of what we do and not the, the moments that are like, oh my God, we got to get this done before, before it rains tomorrow or whatever the random seasonal pressures are. But that, that's just real with any agricultural venture, I think. Right. Yeah. You have so many um, skills and you, you know, all of the, you have all of these, this like knowledge base that you've shared with the world on your YouTube channel. And I'm wondering if you've mostly just learned as you went along the way, or if you have specific mentors or teachers that have influenced you. Um, I, I think learned along the way would be the more accurate. Yeah. Um, I think, I think learned explicitly from nature which it almost sounds kind of cheesy or not 
I don't know. Not on this, not on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, you know, when, when there's questions, it's like I, for a long time, I would have questions about like, well, I wonder what happens with this plant relating to that plant, or what about this sort of level of density, or what about this plant climbing on that plant? And looking for examples online or references in books, I would generally feel a little disappointed with what I could find, but then hanging out in hedgerows or um, I tend to drive like almost ridiculously slow sometimes um, in the hopes of just, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Like just seeing patterns and, and absorbing, like seeing, you know, groups of poplars and how that colony spreads and what the vine layers, you know, what is Oriental bittersweet? Like that seems like an analog to hardy kiwi, but what's, what's happening 30 years in as that rides into a stand of box elders and like, it always seems like it's actually knitting the box elders into the overstory of black locust. What does that mean? What can I take from that for designs? Is that something that's meaningful that we can apply? Or is it, there's just a unlimited amount of um, pattern language and examples of both functional and dysfunctional and everywhere in between um, interrelationships happening all around. And so there, I feel like I could fill a couple lifetimes of observing that and trialing that with the plants that we're stewarding um, before I'd kind of hit a wall of like, oh, I need to figure out some new thing to experiment with. Mm, yeah. Yeah, for sure. You several lives. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's so many, so many, <coughs> all the different interactions too. And then, yeah, like looking at uh, years, decades in advance, it's really, I mean, hard to visualize that but being able to go around and like see analogs like the what whatever vines are growing up through whatever trees you know mm -hmm. um it, yeah it helps helps that visualization but then again each vine operates a little bit differently you know and has a slightly different niche yeah and i you know i think <clears throat> i think earlier on i've been experimenting these ways and planting this way since around 2005. Um, uh, I think early on, I, I, I guess when I very, when I first started planting trees and shrubs as a, as a main focus, I was incredibly loose with it. I don't think I thought at all. I just would just dig a hole and put a tree in and dig a hole and put a tree in. And then it kind of went to a place once I felt like I knew more and I read edible forest gardens and I, you know, is aware of these guilds and this and that, I started thinking, oh, well, this tree needs to be to the north of that. And this needs to happen there. And what if I do that wrong? And I started wrapping these rules and structures around what I was doing. And then it took a little while to unlearn that and not come back full circle to just anywhere that I want to, I'm going to randomly put a tree in the ground, but <laughs> feeling, um, developing a little bit more of like an intuitive feel or also that there are these like subtle cues that if you don't overthink it, but you do things enough, nature starts to give you enough intuition that I, I jokingly say like I plant, I almost plant like it's Ouija board style. Like I'll walk around sometimes with like a bare root, I'll pull a bare root tree out of a bucket of water and I have a shovel in my other hand and I'll kind of walk until it feels like it's heavier. And then that's where the tree goes. Um, and, and acknowledge that maybe it's a really bad location, but it will be wonderful firewood 
in 10 years or will be a mushroom log or will be mulch for some other tree that was better, better positioned somewhere else or it'll die because of a cold winter or a dry summer. And then it just takes the pressure off that way. Yeah, or it'll thrive there and, you know, create, yeah. many, you know, harvests for you. That's kind of how I do my planting these days too. I mean, I have like kind of structures in my mind about where in general I'm going to plant stuff, but like I asked the plant, where, where do you want to go? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I actually kind of like whispered, Oh, you do that. I was like, you do that. <laughs> when you were talking about that, that's cool. So I wondered though about your uh, worldview um, uh, with plants and the, like, do you, how do you see plants and uh, the, the earth or nature? Like, do you see them as discrete entities? Do you have a kind of an animist perspective or just like, uh, more of a, an amorphous perspective, uh, or do you have any kind of uh, spiritual spiritual orientation to um, to working with plants and and earth? Huh. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I have anything definitive to say about that around, like that. You know, oh yes, it's that or it's this. I uh, I think that I would describe, if I were to describe a feeling around plants and how I see them, it's that it's almost like the system itself in a given landscape is an organism and the plants are cells or like entities within that, a little like, you know, I would consider like a beehive, the colony, the organism and the bees the cells or the the little elements that kind of conspire to become a whole being and i i do i mean i recognize and see trees and plants and shrubs all as they're they're clearly their own beings and they have their life cycles and they reproduce and they have children and all those things but it it feels like the system itself uh is what it is that i'm seeing more or feeling more when i'm working um but I haven't really thought about it enough to, as you can clearly tell in the way I'm responding to that. But it, I, I think I think I may see things in a little bit of a blurrier, zoomed out sense than the details, if that makes much sense. That definitely makes sense. Yeah. Seeing it as an organism all working together, like individual organisms all working together. But it seems like you do have sort of like a system and pattern recognition and intuitive understanding. I, I think as time goes on, I'm acknowledging the reality that it's the, the trees, the shrubs, the, the plant beings follow from the primary work, which is understanding the flow of water and nutrient and energy in a given landscape. And that those things can get, those things can manifest concurrently and with dialogue between each other. But it's in a way, it's almost as though like the human powered earthwork doing the ponds and making swales and channels and ditches and overflows and having those connect to each other and having that water move through, um, that begets what happens in the tree and shrub layer in association with that. And I, I actually, I would describe myself like in a given year, I probably spend 60, 70% of my labor, time, thought, energy in the work of moving soil and water and having 
those sorts of flow systems develop and deepen and become fractals or whatever they're going to be doing and the remaining tending to and adding the plants to have dialogue with that part of it so it's almost like I'm, i feel like i might be farming water and soil more and the trees are, are part of what helped that farming practice almost very cool yeah i can see that yeah so i remember when i first um came across you it was maybe 10 years ago and i was i had gotten into permaculture oh. you know around 2011 and uh looking on i was like looking at, on youtube like every day looking at like the what new videos there were on permaculture or yeah. you know those sorts <laughs> of things and i remember um you doing a hand dug pond and that's something mm -hmm. that i was really interested in at, at that time I, I dug my own pond i did like a epdm liner though, oh, cool. like, um because i found on craigslist and stuff but it was really uh it was really cool to see you doing that too because it's it's uh it's a really great way to learn about how water and soil work. Um, yeah. And every, I mean, if you look on, on YouTube for videos about digging ponds, usually it's a giant like cat or machine of some sort doing it, which, you know, you can do a lot more with that, but um, it's, it's like, it takes a lot more work to, to do it by hand, but you get to get to learn um, in, in, with your body. It's a visceral experience. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's that, there's a huge cost savings. I mean, if, you know, it's mm -hmm. clearly like if you're trying to dig a half acre pond, yeah, uh, it's, it's, and you need it to be, you know, eight feet deep in the middle and, and reliably there and all, and, and a berm that retains water in a meaningful way, the human scale is just very, very difficult to do that. But in most in a lot of the landscapes that a lot of people steward, you know, the half acre yard where you might want a 10 foot diameter pond because it's seasonally wet there and you see frogs sometimes, but then it dries out too soon for the tadpoles to have a nice time or like rains rushing through and you'd like it to drop silt somewhere before it gets out to the road. And like all these little subtle, playful, but then pretty meaningful water water absorption games can be done with human scale. And it's a nice reminder to know you don't have to do it all in one fell swoop. It can be something that you chip at over years. And the, then all of a sudden it becomes where like each shovel full of soil, depending on what strata you're in, can become really rich topsoil for a permanent raised bed that's near the pond. So that then now you've got like this wet area and a well-drained area in dialogue with each other and the sun can reflect off the pond and, and heat the island you're making. And then you get deeper and you realize like, okay, there's stones in here and those can be used to absorb heat in this area or frame a raised bed. And then you get into like clay layers and sand layers. And then all of a sudden now like cob building and, you know, natural earthen building, like some of the ponds that I've dug over the years were specifically to harvest the clay and sand that I was hoping to build a little cob outbuilding or a little structure or a wall to like absorb sun heat or deflect wind. And th those sort of nuances just don't happen, I think, when, when a machine is churning away and it's like, you know, it's a hundred bucks an hour to have someone there or it's a thousand dollars a weekend. Um, 
you tend to like material gets flung around a lot more, you know? Um, so it's, it's kind of fun, I think, to have that. It, yeah, I, I prefer it at this point. And I, once in a while we've, you know, I've, our neighbor was open to the idea of digging a pond. He was really excited to do it with a machine. So cool, we did it with a machine. But then all of the associated overflow channels and the, you know, the rice patties that could be near it and the layers that can have the arrowhead and the calamus and all those sorts of things definitely need to be done by hand. So that's that's been enjoyable for sure. Yeah, and it really does matter uh, what what scale you're working on to like mm -hmm. a half acre or a quarter acre lot like you can't I mean, you can't get a machine in there anyway and you don't want to but yeah if you have like you know if you want to build a, a quarter acre pond then you kind of have to unless you have like i've seen some of those videos of people in india who have like a whole village do it yeah you know, for the whole summer and that's amazing yeah the andrew millison videos where he's yeah they're documenting it was like 90 people in 90 days and they dug like an acre pond and had like terraces that were accurate within a centimeter or two of different water levels and they could graze animals at this time of year it's brilliant and beautiful to see what people and they didn't even have they were using like handmade shovel like tools and didn't have wheelbarrows they had like pieces of metal drum that were pounded out that people would carry each load on top of their head up and out of the pond like they didn't even have a wheelbarrow to work with so yeah at, at every scale it's pretty remarkable what's possible yeah. I just have a quick question about ponds have you found a a time of year that in this area it's like the best time of year to to dig out a pond like whether it's spring or summer or fall or um i guess well when we dug the pond in our neighbor's yard with the machine it made the most sense because most years are quite wet where Sasha and I live, the half acre that we live, and now that our neighbor's letting us uh, expand into his acreage, um, it would have been too wet in most years to even think about having a machine in there. So in 2020, when we had a really good solid drought, um, we leveraged the end of summer, it was basically like August, September, to have the machine come in when it was the absolute driest and do the disturbance then. When I do shovel work by hand, I tend to like to chip away at it. I like to do most of the work at the beginning of winter and the end of winter when it's compatible, like there isn't other really intense pressing nursery work that has to happen and it's cool enough that it's harder for the body to overheat. Um, and you know the ground can be a little right now. It's getting cold enough that the window to do pond work is basically shut down until we get some thaw. Mm. Um, but as soon as it thaws and the water starts to move again, that tends to be when I like to get back into it. So then I can really see where the water levels are and work from there. And then renovating them and going deeper in the summer when things dry out and you can go deeper without being underwater. Right. Right. Okay. Very cool. So, um, so you do, you have the nursery business, you have your like home gardens, homesteading type stuff and uh, the YouTubing what, mm -hmm. and you do like, I guess some, some teaching and some consulting too. So, um, what's your favorite part about that, about, of your role? Like, uh, what do you see yourself primarily as? Hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's, 
it's a mix of all those things. I, I think I feel identity in all of them. I, um, I think that what feels most compelling and what feels like the most valuable part of who I am and what I can offer the most in is when there's time to be able to experiment and do it in a somewhat wild way and like try out some things that are hopefully unique and maybe will will fail but to doc like to document those for the youtube channel or however you know take photos i find that to be pretty darn exciting like doing those experiments and sharing them getting feedback from folks like that it's something they've already tried or it's something that inspires them to try that and like or I've tried it. I know it's going to fail. Here's why. And then I can make some adjustments early on. Um, so I think the exploration work is pretty darn compelling. Um, but then it's, it's, it, uh, when we think about how many trees are getting grown in a year and um, putting together orders for, you know, we do most of our shipping or sales in the bare root season in the spring and in the fall and putting together these care packages of like, you know, little sampler suites of food forests that are filled with like super hardy, nearly impossible to kill plants that make delicious food. And it's going to, you know, North Dakota and to Alaska and also Florida. And just like thinking about what the, the destinies of all these different plants in these boxes will mean. Um, that part feels really compelling. So yeah. I think all of it does at different times. We love, and being in the garden, like when Sasha and I can be out in the garden during the summer months and be eating just tons of fresh food right from where we live. Mm -hmm. um, so they all hit sweet spots for sure at different times. Yeah. So what are some of your favorite plants to grow and share with the world? Uh, I mean, we grow so many different, they're all kind of neat and fun. I, I don't, get tired yet of the what feels still like a weird magic trick of like the super easy to propagate plants like the currants and elderberries that we just take cuttings in the fall of random lengths of branches and jam them in soil that's hopefully decently fertile but it doesn't even have to be and throw some kind of mulch or rake some leaves mm -hmm. over them and then the next fall there's just these like beautiful three foot tall shrubs with ropey root systems it was like each year that that happens it feels it feels like it feels like a trick like we're getting away with something <laughs> yeah. um, so cool. <laughs> those plants those plants are really rewarding um i think each year it feels like it's a very um there's a lot of question marks going from the fall to the spring as to what tree seeds will be around because each year i'm trying to collect different and more seeds and experimenting with how we're storing them and trying to store them in more passive and more wild ways. And it's like this fall, we collected ten, tens and tens of thousands of tree seeds, but they're stored in ways where I won't know until things thaw out and the snow recedes and the ground is ready for us to dig in, like whether these crates that are buried in this area will have four or 5,000 pawpaw seeds and will they germinate and will the hazelnuts be there? Will they be eaten? So um, I think uh, the mystery or the experiment each year in those things keeps it, keeps it exciting, keeps me on my toes for sure. Cause we definitely have 
there's nothing about our nursery that feels like it's, you know, tested and simple. And I know it's going to work every year, except for those cuttings, <laughs> everything else feels like we're always experimenting, like, let's see what happens. And there's a wide enough net cast every year that we are generally, we're generally overwhelmed with how many plants we have to manage, even though we might have like 60% mm -hmm. failure sometimes. Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, are there some plants from like a homesteading perspective that really like pull their weight the best that you've, that you, that you grow? Um, I mean, I think over time, like what we have, what we offer on the website at this point has been curated a bit to represent plants that have been really easy, really reliable overall. Um, I think there's some herbaceous perennial veggies that like, okay. Uh, when I think of good King Henry, which is just, it's still somehow, it was a very common herb back in the day, but now it's like, you know, it's harder to track that plant down. And, and it's so, it's really easy to grow from seed. They're incredibly early, incredibly delicious perennial spinach uh, analog. I think at least to my mind, it's, it's like more substantial, more flavorful than an annual spinach. And they have very deep root systems. So those plants and like the deer don't seem to eat them. Rabbits don't seem to eat them. The roots go three, three to six feet down in the earth. So we don't have to water them. They keep up with the weeds really well. You know, sorrel does a very similar thing. So there, there's some really neat winners in the hardy perennial vegetable realm that we work with quite a bit. Um, and I don't know, I mean, there, each year it feels like there's some new characters that have show, that are showing themselves to be way hardier, way easier, mm. way more resilient than we thought. Like Gumi is a mm, cousin to, yeah. They're like, boy, and I, I didn't think that would be so deer resistant. Like we've got extreme deer brows. And it's like, here's these patches of Gumi that are just growing beautifully. Um, but we're still trying to figure out what's the best way to grow them from seed or cuttings like that. Um, that's been an interesting one to learn. Sea buckthorn, I think this last year, when two years ago, we got like, you know, half a handful of fruits from our plantings. And it went from, you know, tiny, tiny sampler of a few little nibblings to <laughs> gallons and gallons of juice this year. Wow. And I, have no, I mean, I can't even imagine how much more there'll be next year. Like that one just ramped up so quickly. Um, and once they're locked into a landscape, they're, they're indestructible to the point of like, Mike, I mean, they're just like spreading like they're bamboo and they're, but meanwhile, it's like delicious, oily citrus fruits. So <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I could describe almost every plant that we grow yeah. through that lens. It, um, so I don't know that there are any particulars that are like way better than everybody else. It's just those that are newest to us feel the most exciting sometimes. Well, those Eliagnaceae plants are really, I mean, so multifunctional and delicious and yeah. undervalued, uh, I think, currently. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the Gumi, I, I've been really happy with that. Um, I've fig finally figured out how to to uh stratify them right <laughs> oh so cool like, it's like a two cycle process you know like mm. they have to do like warm stratification and then cold stratification and then maybe another cold stratification i don't know but i got like a you know 20 sprouted 
you know. Oh, like, nice. I've, I only had like 20, but you know, as, as I get more berries, you know, I'll have more seeds. Yeah. I think the one year where I had good success, if I were to try to remember, it was the seed fresh from eating went directly into some sort of decent soil media. And then in the fall was stored with some leaves piled on top. And in the spring, I think they started germinating nicely. So maybe that's vaguely in the realm. Yeah. That's warm and cold stratification. But then the most other years I've had zero <laughs> germination, but, um, yeah. but that's cool that you figured out a system that works. If you end up getting lots and lots, we should, we should trade for some other fun plants. Yeah, for sure. And I might've been a fluke, you know, it was <laughs> the first time it's worked, but um, yeah, I've got a bunch that I did that with uh, this year, probably a couple hundred. So mm -hmm. that, I'll do it, but yeah, that's an amazing plant and the sea buckthorn. So they do really run pretty heavy. Wow. Okay. So I got a, I, I planted a bunch of those seedlings out. Um, I can move them still, <laughs> but I, you know, maybe I've planted a few of them too close to, to like the annual beds, you know? Yeah. That's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, I mean, so as a nursery, what we try to do is identify what the innate behaviors are of plants and how that can be not, you know, I guess leveraged is the word I would land on, but maybe there's something more graceful to say, but, um, you know, if they are in proximity to annual beds and you know, they're going to run into those beds, well, then they're, they're fixing nitrogen when they run into them. And for the growing season that those, that new flush of suckers are all in and amongst your, you know, your kale and your peppers or what have you, they can grow and they're, they're, they're like beans, you know, they're, they're fixing nitrogen as they go. And in the fall, you can go in with a sharp spade and sever those umbilical cords and um, sneak out those runners and transplant them on. And so in, in some ways, like that's how we have Seaberry basically named cultivars on the boundaries of our whole annual garden area. And they sucker and spread into beds and but there's enough space between the named varietals that we know who those suckers are. Like we know that's, that's going to be a male, that'll be radiant. Those are going to be, you know, Russian orange or what have you. Um, and we just chase them out every year or every other year. And then this way, we're not trying to be propagating them. We're just basically chasing the chaos that they're setting in motion. And at some point we'll completely lose that and it'll just overrun everything with Seaberry and then we'll just have to eat them and that'll be okay. <laughs> we, I hope. I, Isaac made a really delicious oxymel out of some Seaberry um, yeah, with okay. some apple cider vinegar and honey. It's like using the juice and preserving mm -hmm. it with apple cider vinegar and honey. So that's a good way to keep it. You could just have an, a Seaberry oxymel business. <laughs> yeah, great. Learned that yeah. from Ben Falk had the, has those nice videos on that. It's so good. It's like a tropical treat. Yeah. It's so powerful. Yeah. yeah. Such a powerful medicine. Yeah, it's like the, those plants that live at the intersection of being really legitimate, deep medicines and also incredibly pleasurable to eat. I mean, it's like, I think of black currants, they, mm -hmm. they live soundly in that, like the amount of antioxidants and minerals and vitamins. And then also they're just so special. And Sasha makes these wines from the currants each year. Um, she will harvest elderflower and then make um, a yeast start, like an elderflower with uh, honey syrup to get the yeast woken up. And then that gets pitched into the fresh pressed juices with some honey or sugar. 
And so they're complete wild ferment um, wines. And it's, you know, each bottle might be a little bit different. Some will be fizzy enough that it feels like it just the whole thing's going to shoot out across the room. Some are completely still. Um, some are a little sweeter, some are vinegary, but they're all really special and, and magical and medicinal. Um, and the elder flower presents if the, depending on the variety, like they'll present just a little bit before the black currants become ripe. So the timing works out that the, the one harvest segues to the next, and then it just kind of flows into being that product, which is really sweet. That sounds so delish. We, I enjoy that. She, she gets allergic when she drinks those wines, but she cooks with them. But I, I do not. And I derive a lot of pleasure from them. So <laughs> I appreciate her continuing to make them, even though she doesn't have as much fun as I do with them. Uh-huh. That's yeah, that's sweet. <laughs> yeah, I don't really drink that much wine anymore, but I still like to make it, you know. It's mm-hmm. it is fun and it's a great way to preserve all those vitamins and antioxidants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sweet. So of those um the the new plants, are are there any like new plants that you're really excited about that are have entered the scene? Um here. I mean, we the thing is it's uh we've hit a little bit of a wall as far as the number of different plants that we manage and the number of named cultivars and varietals and scion woods and all these different elements that we're managing that, you know, if this were like three or four years ago, I could probably rattle off what my plant order for this upcoming spring looks like and how excited I am about these and those. And right now, what I hope to feel excited about is simply keeping up with the the genetic nets that have been cast. Like there's a Mm. now a three-year-old, if not a four-year-old bed of seedling Shisandra on the margin of the property that had, you know, there's like 200 seedlings that over the years have now merged into this like, you know, supernova of vines. And I have to cut some back and un untwangle them so we can separate them and so i'm excited to actually like get caught up on these these elements that have been set in motion that that now need the next phase of being lifted and divided and set into permanent places where they don't where they're not going to be messed with anymore like you know a four by 20 foot bed of rhubarb seedlings that are showing lots of neat little genetic diversity and they need to be lifted and and set on two foot centers in some spot and let to grow on so we can actually have a non-clonal bank of rhubarb genetics that you know I've selected from rhubarbs that that want to make seeds I'm not sure exactly why but it feels like some it feels like there a lot of plants are repressed from having sex and it seems like yeah. in, inviting that back into the genetics seems important for their for everybody's health um so there's, there's excitement in that kind of stuff of just getting caught up with these, um, these complexities. But then like we found, I found a person in zone four Utah who has an amazing collection of late flowering apricots. And he sent me a bunch of seed last year. So now I've got seedlings of very cold, hardy, very, very late uh, apricot cultivars that will be fun to see what those do. But mm-hmm. We're just setting in motion these things that, you know, some of them will, will start to bear in two or three years. And then there's like Northern hardy pecans that I grew mm-hmm. from seed that 
you know, we're probably like 16 years out before we see what their, the quality of those nuts are. So I'll be in my late fifties when we first hopefully get to start eating those. <laughs> so, you know, the long game plants. Yeah. Right. But I mean, I luckily planted a few Northern pecans in 2009 uh, at my folks property. And so now there are, there's one that's like eight inches in diameter and about 30 feet tall. And it, it was ready to make a really big crop of nuts this year, but the squirrels took them all. Um, so I figured one, one year soon, there'll, there'll be too many for the squirrels to take and we get to try what those taste like. So Amazing. it's all just staggered. Cool. Yeah. So it kind of seems like you, you hit peak diversity a little bit and you've got to kind of just manage what's, what's going on already. Yeah. Well, peak, peak diversity and peak density mm-hmm. and, you know, literal edges of landscape to receive the, you know, we'll, we need to sell more or give away or trade or wild plant more and more because we're just, it's like, I don't, I don't know in, on either of our sites that we're managing that there really is much room for any more seedling persimmons. Like there's, you know, 40 or 50 and how many can you possibly <laughs> eat from? So like we're hitting the, yeah, the upper limit of how much of a given gene pool can occupy in the space if the spirit is to like, have it be as diverse as possible for as long as possible. Um, we're, we'll either need more land or we'll need smaller plants. <laughs> so, right. Well, we, we interviewed uh, Joseph Lofthouse uh, a month mm. or so ago, and it, it seems like the way he um, grows plants, you know, he, he adds a lot of diversity and then sees what works well and then kind of selects from that. Mm-hmm. And I think like on a meta level, we're, you know, doing that too. Like you're at the point where you can, you, you, you've planted most things that could probably uh, work in that area. And now you're kind of like seeing, you know, what, what works best or, I mean, I guess it's all working well. Yeah. I think where, where it's challenged. So with Joseph, his work is absolutely stunning and wonderful. Um, The Ben, benefit slash challenge, what have you, is that there is a reset button that happens each year when it's predominantly annuals that like yeah, right, right. get to clear the slate of that field and try something new or let itself sow and fill in the gaps. But like, you know, with the tree systems, it's like, oh my gosh, that those 18 trees that all didn't die are now, now it's closed canopy. So like, okay, I guess we'll have to experiment with ginseng and Solomon seal and you know, ramps under there because they're the, the gamut of who can occupy that, the niche that is inevitable is really closing down, which is sweet, you know, but, um, but it's, a, it's, it's a more real limitation. Um, one that I think I was aware of coming into it, but only kind of conceptually, but now I realize like, oh, it's actually a very, it's a very real part of systems like this is having to make culling selections or simplifying what you're doing or you know making adjustments to what your goals are based on what the the system is like a genetic runaway train sometimes yeah well it takes a while to get there you know years so yeah when you're when you're just starting out it's like i have this giant area even if it's just like a quarter acre or whatever like i gotta fill it with plants and then suddenly you know a few years later it's filled with plants and then (laughs) right 
and then you're like, well, where do I, where do I put more plants? But then I think at a certain point, it's like learning to shed the feeling of preciousness about each of the plants. And I think that comes back to the feeling of the landscape as the organism and the plants as cells or branches or elements within it and saying, well, like, okay, I'm seeing these pawpaws now as incredible mulch to support this pink current that I, you know, I have got pawpaws and now these new suckers are coming up and, but I don't have enough pink current. So boy, those big broad leaves of pawpaws are looking really, really delicious as a mulch. And so the nutrient cycling game starts to become interesting within that, like raking up. I mean, I get like wheelbarrow loads of pecan leaves and chestnut leaves to mulch with now. And it's like, boy, that, that really feels exciting. Um, yeah. You know, like building soil with the mulch from the system is, is pretty, pretty fun having the feedback loops tighten up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we're, this is going to be our third season here at about seven and a half acres. And it was a lot of hay field. So we planted, we've been planting a lot over the last, mm-hmm. you know, two years, but I can already see, you know, I've, I've already planted most of the canopy trees that we're going to, gonna have but limit mm-hmm. what yeah. kind of trees have you been putting in uh probably a lot of the same ones um northern pecans like i got a lot of oikos trees um oh, before, cool. which was nice because i mean they kind of stopped selling to like yeah. regular people <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the last year but uh yeah those oh, northern hardy pecans um persimmons pawpaws you know chestnuts um black walnuts mm-hmm. uh all those we, we i think we're a little colder than you so um what i'm what i'm hoping is that the things like the pecans and the persimmons are actually going to ripen <laughs> in our kind of short cool summer you know uh-huh. if they, i mean they seem are the persimmons are doing pretty well where you are right it's mixed um the genetics from so we have uh persimmon seedlings that uh were i brought in from oikos tree crops in 2009 that are at a bearing age and it's a real mixed bag um the genetics whatever he whatever they were selecting from then had a pretty wide range and there's some that are very disease prone and sucker in strange ways um and then in 2011 i found a source of American persimmons that were from Elwyn Meter's work. Um, he did a fair bit of breeding when he was in uh, zone four, New Hampshire. And children of those trees crop pretty darn reliably and uh, very, they, they ripen, but they hold the fruit late. I was eight persimmons two days ago, actually, from some trees wow. from that planting. Um, so that's, that's the lineage that we're focusing on, but I'm I'm happy that there are both genetic packages because they'll be able to talk and mix and maybe find something else that is a hybrid between the two. They also, and not to get too deep into the percent, but I've learned they're really strange in their dioecious that the more, um, I forget if it's the inverse this. Anyway, they trend to being lots and there being lots and lots of male if you get a bundle of 20 seedlings, they might be like 14 males by volume, depending on how many males were in the parent planting. So it's like all these different things you learn, like the more males, 
from where those children came from, the more likely they are to be males. And if it's a block of all females with one male, then you have very low male representation in the genetics. Like you learn so many strange things about these plant beings when you get go down those paths. <laughs> That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And because I know there's also, I mean, you have like some female persimmons that sport male flowers and vice versa. So uh-huh. it's like a little fluid there too, anyway. Yeah. They're, they're, they're a really interesting tree. They seem to have a lot of uh, genetic diversity already, you know? Yep. Um, Different but, form, branch form. Yeah. All sorts of nuance there. Yep. But they're also, as far as I'm concerned, I think my favorite fruit. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I, I like them better than pawpaws. I mean, pawpaws oh, yeah. are great, but it can only eat like one or two, um, you know, but persimmons, they're just like dates, they're candy. They're, they're, yeah, and th- if you can get them to be reliably cropping in, a, in your climate, you know, if they, um, finding parent trees, it, you know, that's another one of those long games. It's like seeking out trees that are growing well in your area, identifying ones that crop reliably annually, that have a flavor you like, um, and that ideally crop as late as possible, but ripen evenly. Um, once you find that, then those are the ones to grow from. And then it takes about eight years from seed for them to start fruiting. Um, but they can handle the most brutal drought or flooding conditions. They can grow in deep shade. They can grow with competition of roots. They seem to grow through deer brows. So vegetatively, they're so reliable and they're Ebenacee. So they're like yeah. the highest BTU I believe the highest BTU tree in the Northern hemisphere, I could be wrong on that, but I, I think they're pretty much like quite a bit more energetically dense than Osage orange. Um, so then all those males can be firewood, like black heart wooded firewood for, you know, rocket masonry stoves in 2054. <laughs> That's another way to look at them, you know. Exactly. Yeah. I, I heard that they're kind of like the inverse of the black locusts. It's like the black locusts grow heartwood very, very quickly, um, but the the persimmons grow the heartwood very, very slowly. Yeah, I've pruned branches off of some persimmons now that are nine or ten years old, and the heartwood is it's like jet black, you know, like a it's an eighth of an inch thick jet black rings completely surrounded by white. So they, you know, like 10, 10 years in, they're just, there's a tiny whisper of that black heart in there. It's really, but um, yeah, they're, they're really special beings and they're just a fun adventure and they're so strong that then it's like, okay, they, they're a scaffold onto whom perennial vines can grow. So like the Hoblitzias and the, ground nuts and the Malabar spinaches in the summer and maybe even hardy kiwi, like there's explorations to be had there. Like ebony, there's just, there's some of the strongest wood that you could possibly grow. And so it's like this incredible ladder too. It's like, yeah, tangerine and dates falling (laughs) down from a powerhouse ladder of firewood. That's mainly dudes. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. Those hardy kiwis, they really need uh, strong <laughs> supports. I've seen them tear down uh, structures before. <laughs> yeah, ki- hardy kiwis vegetatively kind of brutal. Uh, and <laughs> um, But they're, they're an interesting plant. And 
we do we have them in association with trees but only only where we plan to have really intense management but um i don't know yeah they're they're an interesting one they they almost certainly need their own like entirely black locust arbor or some sort of you know decaying building to climb <laughs> yeah. yeah they're a great post-apocalyptic follow-up vine i think yeah that's a great way of looking at it <laughs> and then you have to be able to harvest them too because like if they're way up in the tree you know it's kind of hard i honestly run chickens through it or something yeah i am um, just a fun side note there's a fellow steve Breyer, who uh, runs a nursery called triple brook nursery in southampton massachusetts mm -hmm. <clears throat> he's in his late 70s now and from what i understand of it his rough guess is he has over a thousand different types of useful perennial plants for zone 5b wow um, and he has a, a 50 year old female hardy kiwi growing in a 160 year old red maple on the boundary of the property and he just he brings uh two or three bales of straw a week before the kiwi crop is ready and flakes it out underneath roughly the where the densest part of the canopy is and then just comes out and picks up all the fruits and they nice. they fall from like 60 feet up if they land on straw they're they're firm enough and he just has to eat them fresh but i, I went there after the harvest and it just reeked of like bad kiwi wine <laughs> but he <laughs> just finished eating the crops of that wow i guess that's that's the way to do it i, I guess like it'd be better than a uh tarp or something because the tarp would be harder landing yeah you need the floofy you need the floof exactly yeah, yeah. that's a good pro tip <laughs> so do you do um some like graph like graft work on your persimmons and, and other plants like that that like you know aren't like if you have too many males or do you just cut them and, and mulch them or burn them um we i i've i've learned enough with grafting that i'm you know slightly above novice with apple grafting and so now i go out and we'll top work uh, seedling apples over to different late bearing varieties and a little bit with pear. Um, and I had my plan, I'm bringing on different named cultivars of uh, Che or the melon tree so that we can graft those onto Osage orange that are planted throughout and some mulberry varieties. The challenge when I think you get into like the Osage and the um, mulberry and the persimmons is the they really need warmth to make a proper callus and take and so what i understand of it is that you want to do like rind grafting when it's already warm out and that's a whole realm that i just don't have any skill there so it's like the option is held open to develop that skill because there are so many trees planted in the landscape and i just figure well in a couple of years i can get there i'll know I'll know which females in the landscape make fruit that we really, really love and want more copies of and which ones are definitively males. And maybe by then I'll have a skill high enough to do a mediocre job of having some of them take. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you gotta, gotta do it to, <laughs> to learn how to do it, I guess. Yeah. Also, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm still I'm at a, like a middling level of success with, uh, with grafting, did a bunch of pears and apples last year, but so you just got to keep practicing, I guess. It's fun. I, I always feel more excited planting things from seed. Um, so 
and I, I just hope to not die young. So then we get to try lots of different <laughs> things, but it, you know, there's enough set in motion that we're, did I lose you? Yeah. Well, uh, did I, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm back. Anyway, maybe that's that. Maybe that's zoom saying, okay, enough's enough, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, um, it would, I, I would like to pick your brain just a little bit about Schizandra before we get uh, nearing the end here. Sure. Um, because that's another plant that um, I find very fascinating. It's super medicinal. Um, it's great for this climate. And it seems hard. Like I have not had success with propagating it from seed yet. I got a bunch from Oikos. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, how, like, are you just letting them drop or yeah how, how are you you said you have like hundreds of them underneath your uh vines is that just from letting them drop or do you have like a, a way of of doing it oh um no i so i have lots and lots of seedlings that are okay when i first tried growing shisandra it was from seed uh i sowed in a nice rich garden bed that was somewhere on the cooler, more moist, a little bit shady in the late day, which is what I thought they wanted, and put a nice tag next to it and had 0% germination. Right. <laughs> but luckily, luckily, I forgot that I was going to try to do something else and kind of abandoned that bed. And the next year, I had maybe 20% germination. And then kept up with weeding a little bit. And the year after that had the remaining 80% germination. So I think it was a matter of sowing the seed and being really neglectful for the, or um, paying a little bit of attention and not interrupting the process. Like it, those seeds just took a very long time to sporadically wake up uh, from whatever their amount of stratification is that they wanted. And then but what I learned is year one, they're very, very tiny seedlings, barely there. But then year two, they start to take off. And by year three, the seedlings, they, they're incredibly easy to propagate from root runners. Like if you lift a three or four-year-old plant. So if, if you were to get in um, like an Eastern Prince, which seems worth pursuing, there are like, there are these cultivars that are really good at being self-fruitful. Uh, they make a larger fruit. And from some folks that I know that, that process a huge amount of shisandra, they're like, it is a, it feels like a more potent medicinal. There's more flavor. And like all the way around, there are some great cultivars. Um, and Eastern Prince, if you can get those from, you know, One Green World or Northwoods Nursery as a, as a wholesale or something, um, you get them going for a year or two in a nursery bed. And with a little bit of stooling and a little bit of uh, serpentine and vine layering, uh, you you could have one plant make you know twenty or thirty nice divisible underground root sections with a, a growth tip, and then from there it's kind of a game on. Like they really they really become pretty explosive and spready once they're they're going at, at that rate. Okay, good. That's that's good to know. They're good. Mine are about are you going into their third year so they're starting to you know starting to get there so just patience yeah patience <laughs> yeah and and explore exploratory 
rooting around down there. Like if they're in their third year, they're probably, you know, getting up to your height if they're on a fence, I would guess. And down below, there might be lots, a little like, um, they're a little like the vining cousin to the sea berry. Like, whoa, how'd you get six feet away, Cassandra? Yeah. Um, So they're easy to propagate that way then. Yeah. And it's cool if whenever in doubt, like if you, like we have these really complex nursery beds and there's just roots all mixed in. Shisandra roots smell exactly like the fruits. Hmm. So you just scratch and sniff them and you know who's who down there. That's really cool. Scratch and sniff. So Schizandra is another one of those uh, weird dioecious plants. Um, have you, ha- I've heard various reports ab- about them, but like, have you found them to be strictly dioecious? Um, or is there a lot more, are they more fluid? We haven't, we haven't had them long enough for them to make, they're, they're so odd. They're so hyper hardy as far as cold goes, but then they flower a little early and are so sensitive to frost. They're like hardy kiwi that way. Um, so we haven't had a a crop yet. Um, you know, it's like five years later and we're still, you know, it's like the whole long game thing, but, um, uh, I picked, uh, there's a fellow named Aaron Parker, uh, Edgewood Nursery up in Maine, and he grows both seedling and Eastern prints. Um, and there's another person in Maine, Je- Jesse Stevens, who, uh, talking with them, their take on it is that they are dioecious in part, but they are also um, shape-shifting, and that parts of the plant that present female flowers and fruit in one year can seemingly spontaneously present male the next year. It's hard to suss out because the vines are so complex. Um, But Aaron seems very observant of his plantings and he swears that they just basically, they feel out the waters. They know know when it's time to be a certain ratio of male, certain ratio of female. But long story is like, if you're growing them from seedlings, you wanna make sure you've got a few nearby so that that swirling medley of some male, some female works out and syncs up across the grouping. Um, it's the reason why I think folks gravitate towards Eastern princes, I guess they very reliably make a predominance of female presenting body parts with just a little bit of male in the background. So most plants, most years make a large crop. Um, so th- those seem compelling from a production standpoint, but the more wild, you know, like body shifting fluidity sort of plants feel like the medicine they would offer would be a little bit more dynamic and complex, but I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. And I guess they're, they're talking to each other somewhat like a swarm. Yeah. They need to be in this, their like root zone or something. Yeah. There's some, they, you can really feel, um, I mean, there, there's some of the more ancient plants, right? They're like magnolia family, but like so, so far back differentiated. They're like there's some of the oldest genetic forks uh, in the, in the plant kingdoms from the little that I understand of it. And there's, there, there's something about the way they grow underground and the way the vines work and the way the flowers form that just feels like really other world, like very, very ancient, very like, oh, maybe like pterodactyls were nibbling on these or something. <laughs> like they feel really old. 
Yeah. And they have all like the berries have the, the five flavored, their five flavored fruits. So they're very complex and even their, the way they present their fruit, you know? Yeah. The whole picture is just a very strange and very spectacular being to be sure. I'm, when I think of Shisandra, I get like a little twang in my cheeks and I like, I want Shisandra tincture and fruit as like, I, yeah. If I could plant a hundred of them out and we harvest all of them and dry and make tincture each fall, I would, I would probably go through whatever we could make medicine wise. It just resonates in my body really, really well. Yeah. Even as you were talking about it, I was just thinking about like, I want to try, I've had the tincture, but I want to try like the juice and the oxima. I want to try maybe a pie. I want to like see if they would do a jam. I'm like, you're just rolling through all these thoughts. I'm like in seven to 10 years, I'm going to try all these things. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get together all in, in some, sometime around 2030 and, and have like a Shisandra and Seaberry experimental yeah. bonanza. Amazing. I <laughs> yeah. can't wait. I feel like a Cassandra like pie would be a little I want to try. <laughs> yeah, we should try it. We should try it. Yeah. It's like, yeah, like black peppercorn juice with <laughs> tropical fruit in it is like, I know. Really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Let's try. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Sean, before we let you go, um, are you excited about anything for the future? Uh, like where you've been, you've been doing this, I guess, now for over 15 years, um, consciously. But like, do you, do you see any trends with uh, like permaculture as like a uh, umbrella term uh, <laughs> with that, that whole kind of culture? Um, I guess I, so we're, we're in a, in a sweet or special unique position, I guess, in the ecosystem with all this in that, you know, we have our online store where we sell plants and we can feel year after year whether or not there's more interest or less and the interest in what was a few years ago like less common or or less talked about plants is is absolutely skyrocketing and the interest in really hardy perennial foods and medicines that can be grown easily in people's yards is skyrocketing um and with the youtube channel the amount of interest in videos that talk about establishing these systems and setting up these complex relationships that are really plant centric and resilient and um, like that's growing really rapidly. So it's, it's, there's a, a feeling that to, to my mind is incredibly clear that there is a massive upswelling of people across this country, probably across the world, but we're just in touch with more like us folks um that like it's really happening on on tons and tons of landscapes from the like tenth of an acre suburban or urban lot up to the you know broad acre scale folks are putting in these complex systems that are meant that they'll hopefully get to enjoy the beginnings of but really it's about whoever's next um so i feel an incredible amount of I feel a lot of pessimism about where things are going politically and, and you know, economically and all those things, but yeah. that doesn't matter because I feel so much optimism with where things are going ecologically with what folks are up to. Um, so it feels sweet to be able to report that or share that because it, it isn't something that we're exposed to through most media as like 
huge numbers of folks are swapping out lawns for food forests and, you know, sprayed fields for really complex 20 generational fruit and fat and oil production systems. And that's just happening everywhere. It's, it's pretty rad. Oh, I love, love hearing that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause there, there is a lot of, uh, you know, uncertainty right now. And I think yeah. that's probably part of it too. Uh-huh. I think it's, it's the sweetness, you know, of feel like hearing so much about the climate unraveling and with the COVID stuff and with money, huge amounts of wealth transfer and fundamental rearrangings of power structures. And people can feel like the unraveling of these systems that we, uh, you know, grew up in feeling like they're these permanent concrete institutions, but those are actually the extremely fleeting ephemeral fantasy systems and natural systems are the real systems. And I think people are returning their attention back to what actual reality mm. is and not the like agreed upon strange fantasy. Um, so that feels good. It feels more grounding, <laughs> like pay attention to the plants and the people working with them and the animals rather than the politicians or the folks that are telling like, you know, screaming and with the red flags and the fear, um, th those elements are actually fleeting compared to the systems that we could be engaging with right now. And that lots of folks are. Yeah. Yeah. And I just wanted to say thank you. And I appreciate the work that you and Sasha are doing in your own garden, but how much that ripple effects out with, with you offering it on YouTube to millions of people, like you are actively changing people's lives hmm. with all of your efforts. So thank you for doing your part in that too. It's really our pleasure to do it. It feels, it feels really rewarding to be involved in that for lots of different ways. So yeah, truly our pleasure. Well, it also, it seems like it's really good. Like, as you were saying, focusing on the plants and the people and it, it allows you to focus on something that you actually have some control over and that is uh, beneficial. <laughs> Whereas like I see so many people who are focused on the fear or on stuff they have no control over mm -hmm. and if they're just spinning out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's incredibly unraveling and unwinding to um, yeah. If, if, and fear, yeah, well, we can go down a whole thing with that, but like yeah. clearly fear is an incredibly powerful leveraging tool for keeping people distracted and, and having control over them. Um, and, it, you know, there are things that make sense why they would feel frightening, but then um, if you can't ground yourself with something that you do have actual agency with and that you can have a, a relationship that's like very honest and forthright, um, like I don't feel fear from nature in general, even when things are going in wild, weird ways, like it all just somehow feels, it feels neutral and balanced and calm um, most of the time and, and really honest and really transparent. And I don't sense um, hidden agendas in anything that nature offers informationally or performatively or, you know, there's, there's no like, you get to eat this fruit and then I'm going to take that from you later. It's like, there's just, it's, it's more like real. And that feels like where I'd rather put all of my time and energy is looking at that. Cause it's like, oh, life 
life is good when, when that's the main focus, if it can be. If, you know, we're lucky enough, privileged enough, there's all those layers to it, absolutely. Um, and also it's the choice that we're making right now. Yeah. And there's this um, quote from Bio Kumalafe, like, what if, uh, well, I, I'm not getting the quote right, but like, what if our reaction to the problem is part of the problem, you know, like, um, so by re- removing ourselves from that, we, and, and focusing on the better world, we actually help create it in a certain way, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, Sean, um, where can folks who haven't heard about you find out about you? Um, they can search for Edible Acres if they'd like, um, and that would bring them to, they've got, we've got our website, and they can see some stuff there. How, I mean, if they're interested in what we're up to, the uh, if you search on YouTube for Edible Acres, you'll find our channel, and there's probably way more videos than there there needs to be in there. It's been pumping them out for years, um, and we try to organize different topics by playlist. So if people are interested in raising chickens with compost and food scraps, uh, or doing like inexpensive season extension or propagating plants, then um, those are those are lots of different topics that we focus on throughout the years and it'd be great to have them check them out and, and ask questions in the comments and like have dialogue. It's, it's been, it feels really important to have that exchange with folks there. And so it's been, that's been rewarding for sure. Cool. Well, uh, thank you again for being on the show. This was a wonderful chat. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Yeah. Cheers. Enjoy yeah. Your evening. Yeah. I really appreciate you thinking to invite me out. It feels really flattering. Like, seeing all the other really amazing folks that you're talking with. I was like, whoa, I'm not sure why they're pulling me into chat, but I, I appreciate that you thought that I would be someone to talk with. And what you do is really rad out there getting all these, these nice, um, like thoughtful plant centric folks and the work that they're doing out into the greater world is a really awesome service. So thank you for, for doing that. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Yeah. 